Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hi, I'm Matt Lambros, photographer and host of the upcoming After the Final Curtain podcast. If you like what you're about to listen to on the Abandoned America podcast, and I'm sure you will, check out the After the Final Curtain podcast. I've been photographing abandoned theaters for more than a decade, and during that time I've met many people trying to bring these buildings back to life. Each episode dives into the history of one historic theater and tells the story of the people trying to save them from the wrecking ball. It'll be available on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts very soon. In today's episode of the Abandoned America podcast, we're going to talk about the weird and wild history of the Catskill Game Farm in Catskill, New York, which was once the largest privately owned zoo in the United States and a hugely popular tourist attraction in the Hudson Valley area. I wanted to try something a little different today. First, I'm going to share an excerpt from my second book, Abandoned America Dismantling the Dream, that goes through the tumultuous ride that is the life and death of the Catskill Game Farm. This book was published in 2016, and a lot has happened since the end of the chapter, which closes with a couple buying the zoo in the hopes of turning the property into a bed and breakfast. In the second half of the episode, I'm going to be joined by Matt Lambros, creator of the After the Final Curtain podcast and book series, and we're going to chat with Kathy Ballone, the buyer of the abandoned game farm, to see what's happened with her journey to open that bed and breakfast in the five years since I wrote the book. And what it's like owning a huge abandoned property that so many people have such strong emotions about. One thing I'd like to note, because it can be a bit confusing as you're listening to the chapter, Kathy Schultz is the daughter of Roland Lindemann, founder of the Game Farm. Kathy Ballone, who has no relationship to either, is the one who purchased the zoo with her husband after it closed. With that, let's get moving. I'm Matthew Christopher, and you're listening to Abandoned America. The Catskill Game Farm began in 1933 as the hobby of a New York banker named Roland Lindemann. His father had taught zoology, among other subjects, in Germany, and it inspired Roland to stock his farm in Palinville, New York, with different varieties of deer. By 1940, he was selling them to zoos and acquired more land for breeding in Catskill, New York. Though, in what appears to be a common mistake, the farm is often listed as opening to the public in 1933, An interview in the Tucson Daily Citizen that I consider to be more reliable states that it was in 1945 that Lindemann first opened the property to paying guests because of the great demand to see his collection. By then, Lindemann's menagerie had grown exponentially. A brochure in 1946 boasted that the Catskill Game Farm had bison, buffalo, yaks, llamas, alpacas, camels, antelopes, mountain lions, goats, and several exotic varieties of deer. Over a hundred tame animals, bottle raised for you to pet and feed, the advertising material exclaimed. Fifty acre feeding ground, you walk right in with them. The game farm was an immediate success. The Catskill Mountains were a popular vacation destination, located close enough to New York City, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Pennsylvania for a day trip. The children, born during the post-war baby boom, loved one of the farm's central conceits, a feeding area where families could mingle freely with tame animals and feed them crackers or milk from bottles, conveniently dispensed from nearby vending machines. By 1950, nearly 200,000 visitors were coming yearly, and the menagerie had grown to 600 wild animals and 250 tame animals. 
As hardworking as he was enterprising, Lindemann traveled constantly to acquire new rare breeds, and his efforts were often centered around the preservation of endangered species, like the American bison, whose population by that point had dwindled to only two herds. Every year, new animals and buildings were added and then proudly announced in ads. In 1950, the new attractions were the cinnamon bears and the monkey house. The following year, a baby elephant from Siam named Bonnie roamed loose with the children. In 1952, Lindemann added camels, kangaroos, and Australian ostriches from the late William Randolph Hearst's ranch, and a year later, another shipment of kangaroos, giant woodchucks, and opossums arrived. A playground with a 30-horse merry-go-round, swings, slides, a boat ride, and the hook-and-ladder fire engine was added. A children's zoo with Cookie the Baby Elephant, the Three Little Pigs, and other fairy tale attractions like Mary and her Little Live Lamb, Peter Peter Pumpkin Eater, and the Old Woman Who Lived in a Shoe was built also. During the winter, animals from the surrounding forest actually invaded the zoo for food and shelter. In 1956, Lindemann added the new breeding ground area stocked with wild animals from Africa, Asia Minor, Australia, and Europe. Conservation was one of the primary goals. The Catskill Game Farm now has over 3,000 rare animals and birds, and it's believed to be the fastest-growing wildlife collection in America, Lindemann said in an interview. With our many secluded breeding grounds, the perpetuation of many species is assured. Many of the animals included were being exterminated across the globe, purportedly to make room for the advancement of the human race. More acres were added in 1960. Quote, Due to the critical situation in regards to wild animals and the rapidly changing economic conditions in Africa, the Catskill Game Farm is making a desperate effort to import for breeding purposes huge shipments of rare antelope, equines, and other ruminants. End quote. The game farm was officially recognized as a zoo by the Department of Agriculture in 1958, and it was the first privately owned venture to gain the distinction. Lindemann's work was also lauded by his peers. Described in the Tucson Daily Citizen interview as the envy of all men who yearn to chuck their routine jobs and turn their dreams into realities, Lindemann was genuinely concerned with the unchecked expansion in colonialism that was eradicating species, particularly in Africa where white settlers who saw animals as pests were exterminating them from their farms and where civil unrest with native inhabitants threatened to destroy sensitive habitats. As the settlers were driven out, Lindemann hoped that zoological parks of the world would exert their influence so that well-established parks and game sanctuaries would be placed under international or even United Nations control. He saw tourism as the best means of convincing leaders that it was in their best economic interest to preserve indigenous species, and the Catskill Game Farm was an extension of this mentality. While brochures enticed families to the zoo with promises of baby animals and colorful storybook nurseries, train rides, and small amusement parks, Lindemann was working to round up more animals from a jeep in the outback. You must see the cutest baby bears we've ever had. Watch them pleading for ice cream, the ads implored. You'll find adventure at the Catskill Game Farm. Adventure is in our nature. Few dramas marked the early years. In 1955, a five-year-old girl in the picnic area was nipped by a fox. Lindemann quickly realized that the fox was not a part of the zoo and hunted it down with a small posse. The fox was determined to be rabid. The girl would die without an anti-rabies serum, but her family had left after the incident, and the only clues were that her family drove a blue Mercury sedan and that the girl's name was Nancy. An alarm was sent out to 13 surrounding states. The next day, Nancy's neighbor heard about it on the radio and alerted the family. The young girl was saved. In 1966, a seven-year-old wandered off into the woods to chase a chipmunk and became lost. An army of volunteers, including firemen, Air Force personnel, state troopers, bloodhounds, and game farm staff, combed the area looking for. The child was found in good condition three days later, five miles from the Catskill game farm. On a more ominous note, in 1964, a prized 600-pound kudu antelope was badly injured by teenagers who threw stones at it. Bleeding profusely from its mouth, it escaped its pen and ran into the woods. Lindemann tracked it to a nearby ravine. After determining that the animal's jaw was broken and that it would no longer be able to eat, he shot it and killed it to keep it from starving to death. The antelope had cost $3,500 and was the zoo's only kudu. Though a peacock also had been stoned to death by children a year earlier, it was the first time that an animal had to be killed by the game farm staff due to the injuries sustained because of the visitors. 
He was a rare and beautiful animal, Lindemann sadly remarked, adding elsewhere, overall our clientele throughout the years has been marvelous. As the years passed, the Catskill Game Farm continued to draw crowds from across the country. An acute article entitled Ode to Pat a Zebra in the Idaho State Journal, Lorna Obermeyer rhapsodized about the feeding grounds where one can wander around patting and offering snacks to hundreds of deer, llamas, pygmy donkeys, and others. Off in the nursery, there are small herds of lambs and goats that wander about at large. And, of course, after scratching under furry chins and behind ears, the next urge is to feed the little beast some tasty tidbit. Intelligently, the owners of the Catskill Game Farm have provided for just such expediency. At vending machines, it is possible to get all sorts of tasty nubbins for the animals. Among the Shavalsky horses, tarpons, yak, and Poitou asses, one finds dispensed a tasty rice rye crisp type of cracker that is guaranteed edible fare for the beasties. She enthusiastically recounted, At the bear pit, miniature ice cream cones can be given, and in the infant section, small baby bottles with nipples are available, filled with the special formula suitable for the flocks of young lambs and goats that amble among the crowd. The supplies of food were carefully monitored so as not to create a bevy of overweight blobs. The popularity of the Catskills as a vacation destination was waning with the advent of affordable airfare in the late 1970s and 80s, but the game farm was still doing well. It was the largest privately owned zoo in the United States and featured many animals that, due to tightening restrictions, could no longer be imported. In 1989, an aging Lindemann sold the zoo to his daughter, Kathy Schultz, to manage with her husband, Jürgen, who had a business importing animals for zoos and whose parents had had transactions with Lindemann going back to his time in Africa. Things were about to change. Two years after Kathy and Jürgen took over, the Santa Cruz Sentinel ran an article about a former San Diego zoo employee alleging that zoo animals were being sold as fodder for canned hunts. Many zoos have put aside ethics to rid themselves of unwanted animals that are not considered endangered, the employee stated. Every major zoo in the country is either contributing to the problem or turning their back on it. A spokesman for the San Diego Zoo said it was suspending trade with the Catskill Game Farm pending an investigation due to its dealings with the hunting ranch. In 1994, the Daily Gazette ran a story that the Humane Society had tied the Catskill Game Farm to the sale of exotic animals to canned hunts also. Owners of the Catskill Game Farm and Petting Zoo regularly ship various breeds of elk, deer, antelope, wild boar, and other animals to the Castleberry Exotic Animal Auction in Lampasas, Texas, the paper reported. Kathy denied any involvement of the Catskill Game Farm with the hunting industry, but noted that Jorgen's business supplied animals to whatever the needs are of the public. What's a canned hunt? Well... In a canned hunt, animals would be hunted in a pen, some as small as 25 square feet. They have no opportunity to escape and are sometimes drugged into a zombie-like stupor. A 1996 Philadelphia Inquirer article mentioned opposition by the National Rifle Association to banning canned hunts. It described them as consisting of exotic bear, rare deer, or sheep who have been tamed by hand feeding in petting zoos such as upstate New York's Catskill Game Farm and are accustomed to being around people and were put on ranches where a hunter approaches the animal in a truck or jeep, ambles up to the prey, and shoots it point-blank with a rifle or arrow. Even lawmakers who opposed gun control legislation found it abhorrent. Representative Bill McCollum, a Republican lawmaker from Florida, said, I certainly don't have a problem with hunting, but I don't think most Americans think that's the way you go hunting animals. The anecdote included in the article described a hunter shooting a boar repeatedly with arrows from 10 feet away and bragging about how it sexually aroused him. The hunting reality that an animal who children had fed with a bottle could be sold to a ranch to be executed by hunters once it was no longer young was an ugly contrast to the wholesome image of the park. It was difficult to determine how many animals were winding up in canned hunts in part because Jorgen's business, the Kifaro Exotic Animal Auction in Texas, sold them to middlemen who might then sell them to a ranch. The New York Times reported on several occasions the farm was cited by federal inspectors for things like exposing animals to significant injury hazards and failing to provide medical care to a lame giraffe and an injured elephant. 
The farm also came under fire from the San Francisco Zoo and the Toronto Zoo, which stopped doing business with the game farm because officials at those zoos said they had discovered that it was selling animals to canned hunt operations in Texas. Inspection records from the Texas Animal Health Commission show that about 150 animals, including zebra, deer, and bison, were shipped to Texas from the game farm between 2001 and 2004. Where those animals ended up once they entered Texas is unclear, but records show that only five camels and two zebras were later shipped out. Roland Lindemann had died in 1998 at the age of 91, and while the park had 2,000 animals and 200,000 visitors a year, Kathy Schultz noted the difficulty in moving forward. We're trying to take the Brady Bunch into the 90s, she said. The Catskill game farm was beginning to seem run down and depressing. One former worker said the owner did not put money into fixing it up or replacing fan-favored animals that had long since passed away, such as the kangaroos. A chunk of the profits went into overseas trips for her kids as well as helping them start businesses, sometimes recruiting workers from the game farm itself to work in those buildings. I worked there for two years before getting fed up. Another source mentioned Kathy's lavish parties. While it's hard to substantiate or disprove these allegations, they are not infrequent, nor are depressing stories about the zoo's final years. Game Farm attendee Aubrey Hardwick wrote, I visited this place in 2005. I'm not an animal activist, but this place was depressing, heart-wrenching. You couldn't even call it a zoo. It was like an animal prison. I'm so glad it's gone. The Catskill Game Farm closed on Columbus Day 2006, citing mounting financial difficulties, dropping attendance, and legal regulations. People are looking for more sophisticated entertainment, Kathy Schultz was quoted as saying. After talking with her children, she decided to, quote, quit while I'm ahead. Though she reportedly had offers for the game farm, she turned them down. Mounting concern over the sale of animals to canned hunts came to a head in the zoo's final months. After efforts to convince Kathy to donate the animals to sanctuaries failed, protesters picketed the zoo. During the auction following the closure, activists tried to buy as many animals as they could to prevent them from being slaughtered. Many were saved, but many were also lost. In one notable instance, clothing designer Mark Echo, whose logo features a rhinoceros, paid a buyer with ties to the canned hunt industry twice their winning bid to rescue two rhinoceroses and relocate them to sanctuaries where they could be watched by the public live via webcam. Echo remarked, I'm thrilled that I was able to spare these beautiful animals from such a horrific fate. The rides and equipment were auctioned off on the same weekend as the animals. Small vintage rides went for nearly $10,000 each, and the 1951 Herschel Merry-Go-Round fetched $39,000. In 2012, the property was sold to Ben and Kathy Ballone, who planned to turn the giraffe house into a bed and breakfast and the rest of the property into an RV park. When I first met with Kathy, I was quickly struck by her friendliness and candor. It was one of those opportunities that comes along once in a lifetime, she said. If we didn't purchase it, in 10 to 20 years, we'd look back and think, why didn't we do that? We had to make the decision pretty quickly. Much of the property was in shambles when the Balones purchased it. The reptile house was a pile of rubble, fences and posts had been cut, pens were rendered unusable. Even if everything was exactly as it was the day they closed their doors, chain-link zoos are a thing of the past, Kathy told me. Two years ago, I had an animal activist screaming at me on the phone at 8 a.m. on a Sunday about monkeys and how they needed to be kept sacred. And I'm like, I don't own a zoo. I have no intention of owning a zoo. I don't know why you're screaming at me about monkeys. Public perception has been a th big thing that kind of caught me off guard. I had thought that any people who had negative feelings about the game farm wouldn't hold them against us since we were the new owners and we'd only catch people who had positive connections to the property. That wasn't necessarily the case. Other people who feel the zoo should be reopened despite the fact that animals and equipment are all gone can be equally argumentative. People online sometimes leave comments like, if you're not going to open it as a zoo, you shouldn't open it as anything. It's a very negative approach. Their memories of the property are wonderful, so if it's not going to be exactly what they remember, they don't want to see it as anything else. Every so often we get that, but it's mostly positive feedback. As of the writing of this chapter, the Balones were currently seeking investors for the Bed and Breakfast RV Park and Museum. The property can be difficult and expensive to manage, but every time I visit there, there are new signs of life. Goats, pigs, and peacocks now roam again in parts of the grounds, as do Ben and Kathy's pet dogs and cats. The stables have been rented out and now have horses in them. The paths are well maintained and Ben has fought back the weeds overtaking many of the areas.
It's impossible to predict how successful the Balones will be in their plans, but they're hard workers, respect the property, and if you're polite and contact them first, allowed people to walk the grounds again and reminisce about the days when the game farm was open. They want to keep what's left that made the zoo special and reuse the property in a way that honors the best parts of its legacy. Nostalgia is a powerful thing. As we age, the places and times when we are able to experience things without the restrictions and complexities of adulthood become enshrined in our memories. Though we know there's no way to return or reassemble the pieces of our past into a whole that we can experience anew, places like the Catskill Game Farm become a sort of sanctuary in our spirits, where the magic that has been stripped away from our everyday troubles still exists. We want them to continue on forever, frozen in time as a way of refuting our own cynicism and mortality. Sadly, our dreams have a lifespan also. They're born and flourish, they grow old and eventually die. Seeing the scattered reflections of something so beloved by so many is both heartening and heartbreaking. In its final years, the Catskill Game Farm was no longer the cheerful zoo so many children had visited in their youths, but the happy moments they had there, laughing as a baby goat nibbled at the hem of their sleeve, bottle-feeding a donkey, or witnessing firsthand the majesty of a panther, will never truly disappear. I choose to believe that the magic is still there, and I hope that Ben and Kathy Ballone can find it and share it with the public, albeit in a new form, once again. Okay, so that does it for the history of the Catskill Game Farm. I'm going to take a quick break, and when I come back, I'll be joined by Matt Lambros, creator of the After the Final Curtain podcast and book series, and we'll talk with Kathy Ballone, who bought the property of the Game Farm with the hopes of turning it into a bed and breakfast centered around the zoo's past. Be right back. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hi, this is Matthew Christopher, creator of the Abandoned America book series, website, and the podcast you're listening to. Thanks for listening, and I hope you're enjoying it so far. If you are, and you'd like to support the podcast and help keep it going, there are three things you can do that'll really help out. The first is simple. Just tell your friends and family about it or leave a positive review on your podcast platform if they support it. Good word of mouth makes a huge difference. Second, if you'd like to hear early episodes and see exclusive essays and photos that aren't on my website yet, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash abandonedamerica. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash abandonedamerica. Third, if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, just drop me a note at admin at abandonedamerica.org. That's A-D-M-I-N at abandonedamerica.org. Every little bit counts, and I've got some really exciting episodes that I think you'll love coming up. Don't forget, you can also visit my website, abandonedamerica.us, for tons of photo galleries and background info on hundreds of abandoned sites, or order my two Abandoned America books from your favorite retailer. With that, let's get back to the podcast. Okay, we are back, and I'm joined by Kathy Ballone, who is going to tell us about her experience buying the abandoned Catskill Game Farm and her efforts to create a bed and breakfast on the property. I'm also joined by Matt Lambros, creator of the After the Final Curtain podcast and book series. Just so our listeners are aware, there are some connection issues during recording of the episode, which left about three minutes of the interview sounding kind of tinny, but thankfully they resolved themselves in a minute. I'm still learning the technical end of recording, so I hope you'll bear with me. On to the interview. All right, we are back with Kathy Ballone. We're inviting Kathy here today basically to talk about, Kathy, you own the game farm for nine years, yeah? Yep. So you purchased it in what, 2011? 2012, January okay. 2012. And so what was that like? I mean, I, I think, you know, a lot of people would look at that and think like, you know, an abandoned zoo is kind of a strange thing to buy. It was 
exciting, a little intimidating. It felt very much like kind of swimming in the deep end and not really feeling 100% sure I could swim. Uh, But over time, as we started building on the projects and cleaning things up, it felt better and better. And uh, by the time we left, we felt really good about what we did. Okay. So looking at the beginning of this, I mean, what was it like the first time you went through the property and how did you even, I, I mean, how did you even come to look at the property? Well, we started, we were, my, my, my husband at the time and I were really looking for at least 50 acres, hopefully with a well and septic. That was the goal. And a piece, a parcel that used to be part of the overall game farm property that had a house on it was for sale. And we actually were going to look at that. Never even made it over the threshold. We were uh, about to go see that house. And the realtor was like, well, the game farm's for sale if you want to take a look at that. And we were like, oh, we can go see the game farm. That's cool. It's not like we're going to buy it or anything. Cool to see it. And then so we- you had been there when you were younger or Ben had been there when he was younger? I knew one of you had and one of you hadn't. No, both of us have been there when we were younger, but Ben doesn't remember it at all. Okay. So what do you remember about it from when you were a kid? Uh, I have very few memories. One of my only very clear memories was going there on a field trip. And there was this kid that was in my class that was always really mean to me. And uh, he had like crackers in his bag or something. And I remember being in the lower feeding grounds and this goat was just chasing him around one of the concession stands and he was screaming bloody murder. And I remember being like, ha 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 I also remember standing outside the giraffe house with my parents at some point, just like begging them to wait to leave because I wanted to see the giraffes and they weren't out yet. Did you get to see him or no? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, at least not that day. Mm, that's a yeah. funny because I, I, it seems like a lot of people, their memories are like feeding the animals or, you know, a goat nibbling on a sibling. Yeah, um, or, or a camel spitting in their eye or something. Yeah, that's a lot of them. Oh, I haven't heard that one. Yep. <laughs> so you were looking to you were looking for 50 acres with a well and a septic and you went to see the zoo. What when you saw it, like what was it that was like, oh, this is it. We have to buy this place. Just the sheer potential. It was so big and there was so much going on with the infrastructure wise. And it was such a good deal. And we just thought there is no way we can't do something with this. How uh, how much was it? 90,000. Oh, how many acres? 206. Oh, geez. Yeah, all right. And and your plans initially were for an RV park, right? Campground and RV park, yeah. Once you bought it, I mean, what was that like going on to the property for the first time and being, I mean, were you like, what the hell did we get ourselves into or were you excited? It was, it was exciting. There were also a lot of like little, uh, have, have you ever seen the movie, The Money Pit from the 80s of Tom Hanks? Yes. We had a lot of like money pit moments where uh, (laughs) we're like, we're like, okay, we're excited to be here. We're gonna do all these great things. And they're like, uh, for example, I went out to use the porta potty one day when we were staying there and I went to open the front gate by the ticket booth and it came like the hinge broke and the entire door fell on me and like pinned me to the ground. And I'm like laying on the ground, like Ben, Ben, like I can't get out. There were a lot of like weird little money pit moments like that. Um, but generally speaking, I, I, I mean, we enjoyed the property in general. It was a little overwhelming, but I think we, we enjoyed it for the most part. There was a movie that came out not too long after that, that you said kind of had like a weird parallel. Yeah. Well, we, we bought a zoo that, uh, which I think that might be Ben Affleck. I can't remember now, maybe Matt Damon. Um, but (laughs) the main character's name was Ben, which was my husband's name at the time. And his wife who inspired him to buy the zoo, her name was Catherine, which is my name. And every woman who's owned the game farm since it's, uh, since it's opening day have all been named Catherine's. Yeah. That's kind of funny. And you said that in the movie, she, uh, she passes away, right? Yeah. Yeah. Weird. (laughs) So, okay. So, I mean, you get the property, you have the plans for it. Um, What were some of the things that like you didn't expect about it? We didn't expect how overwhelmingly expensive it was going to be just to keep it. Like just the basic overhead costs were a lot more than I think we realized at the very beginning. And we also thought that we were going to be able to find financing for a project uh, a lot sooner and a lot easier. 
than we did. So the first few years were were stressful when it came to, you know, just money and keeping things afloat. What made you decide to add the in aspect instead of just having it be an RV park and campground? Well, we were thinking of the in almost like a stepping stone to be able to show investors what we could do to be able to then move towards the campground and RV park afterwards. Now, were your plans always to keep the zoo buildings or as many of them as you could when you were turning it into an RV park and campground? Yeah, yeah. as much as we possibly could and repurpose whatever we could. No, it's, I'm, not, I'm not familiar. Is the building on, is the, the grounds, are they on the historic, any historic register? No, they are not. Okay. We chose not to put them on the historic register because if we did, it was going to limit what we were going to be able to do pretty dramatically. Okay. And and really honestly, I mean, as far as actual structures on the site, it's it's kind of a lot of smaller ones. You know, there's a, a handful of mid-sized ones, but they're mostly pens and cages and and yeah. Uh, yeah, there's not a lot of big buildings on the property. So I imagine, I mean, upkeep with that must have been just overwhelming. Well, like I said, not even upkeep on the structures, but like just liability insurance, taxes, like the just the basics of keeping the property was overwhelmingly expensive. And then you had to deal with a lot of people that were like breaking onto the property too, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially at the, in the early years. I had a lot of personal stuff stolen. Yeah, I remember you telling me about uh, camping gear, right? Yeah, all my camping gear. I collected over years of on a Dunkin' Donuts salary. I was really pissed about that. What did you do to manage that? I mean, how how do you deal with the fact that like you live on this property and people are just, you know, it's on the internet and people are like, oh, I'm going to go break in there. You know, honestly, I just went on Vistaprint and I made signs that very clearly were like, we allow people on the property. If you sign up, we'll let you on the property. But if you're found here, we're going to have you arrested. Like, please don't put us in that position. And those signs dramatically cut down people breaking in. When I first met you, I always think about that because it was like one of those things where I knew we were going to be friends from like the first time that we met. And that was, you remember, we went into the yeah. old the old office building. Yes. Yeah. And that place, I mean, um, that, in my opinion, was really one of the coolest uh, buildings on the property. And one of the ones that most people didn't go into just because for those of you who haven't been into it, it was like an office building. But I think they also lived in it too, right? Yeah, they lived in that house before they bought, they built their house down the road. Okay. So, I mean, it had been abandoned for quite some time. It was in really kind of scary, bad condition, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've heard that it really needed a roof back in the eighties. Yeah, I believe it. I believe it. And, and uh, you and I were going through that and we got up into the attic and, and had you been into the attic before that much? I'm going to say no. I, I think that that was only like the first or second time I'd ever been up there. Because you, when you first came to the property, that was like 2013. Sounds about right. Right? So that was only a year after we even bought the property. Ben and I had just gotten married. So I didn't really have much time to even go exploring at that point. So I think it was one of the first times I'd ever been in there. Right. That's. I mean, that's my recollection, too, is we got up to the attic and, you know, it was full of all this crazy stuff like the old hand-painted signs and <laughs> film reels and toys and cards and employee outfits and all this other crazy stuff that was up there, but the floors were just absolutely horrific. (laughs) And you were, you were telling me basically like, okay, well, you know, the floors are really bad here, stay over by the steps. And so I was doing my best to like be respectful and do that. But then you were like, oh, look at this over here. And I was like, can I go over there and look at that? (laughs) Oh yeah. And then next thing you know, we were all over the place. And uh, I just remember, you know, you being very like uh, adventuresome in going out and finding all the stuff. And, and over the years, you went back and collected all that stuff then, right? Yeah, a good amount of it. Yeah, we got a lot out of and, it. And you had a really super nice display of all the uh, the different memorabilia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the hand-painted billboard that you're referring to was actually over the couch in the living room in the inn. I had managed to pull that out of there. How did you do that? Uh, I, I put a rope around my waist and put two by fours across the floor joist because there was no floor left. And I managed to swing it around onto the floor joist and pull it across so we could get it to the stairs and then brought it downstairs. 
I wish you videotaped that. <laughs> yeah. I think the, the person that was with me was more uh, focused on if I fell, making sure that I didn't fall far. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's a better priority. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, I, I, I kind of remember hearing from her that you had you had been talking about, like, again, tying a rope and like hopping across holes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was very <laughs> fond of that plan. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's what I did. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think one of the things that was really cool about this, though, and the way that you approached it was that you were always very respectful of the fact that, I mean, some people would come in, they'd be like, okay, here's this huge thing of land, and we're going to just knock down whatever, let everything fall apart. But you guys were very respectful of the fact that a lot of people really had this sort of deep emotional bond. Yeah, wanted to keep that as part of the identity of the place. Yeah, even towards the end, a lot of people were pretty, they they were pretty forceful in wanting us to sell signs from the property. And Ben and I felt and still feel very strongly that the signs should stay with the property. A lot of them were sold at auction. And that's, but that's where they belong. There's not many left there, and they should stay there. Um, Some people just don't, they don't understand that there's more to a land than just the land itself. And in order to respect its history, some things should remain on that property. I grew up about an hour south of where the game farm was. And I remember, or is, and I remember seeing billboards for it when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. I didn't know it had closed because I moved away and uh, until I saw Matthew was doing uh, workshops. workshops. And I, you know, uh, I read up on it. I read his his piece from one of his books on the, uh, and I didn't know about the end of the game farm. I didn't know how the owners were selling animals to hunters. Yeah. And uh, so my question really is, was there a challenge in separating the stigma of how the zoo ended from your plans to reopen it? Was Did you get a lot of pushback from that? Were people just like, you need to leave it alone and let it go away. You know, we we had a lot of people throughout the years, I mean, not a lot, but a noteworthy amount of people over the years who did feel very strongly that the game farm had a lot of negativity attached to it. And my stance was always, it, it was not always the best place, you know, in the history books for zoological culture. But when you look back and compare it to the other zoos that were opening at the time, it was easily, the pens were 10, 20 times the size of other zoos. Mr. Lindemann loved animals and cared for them far better than any other zoo at the time period. And I don't want to completely diminish the positive piece of history that it encapsulates just because at the end, it didn't hold strong to that. And at the same tone, I think it's helpful for me to be able to say, I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Like that had nothing to do with me. <laughs> like it was, <laughs> that's, it had nothing to do with me. It's totally separate from me. And people did respect that, at least to a certain extent. You said you had people that were calling you both wanting you to reopen it as a zoo and wanting you to close it as a zoo, even though it yeah. wasn't open as a zoo. Yeah, I, I had one woman that was ranting and raving at me about monkeys for like two or three hours the first year that I bought the property because she felt like monkeys were highly disrespected at in the world and at zoos and that she was just disgusted the fact that the property had monkeys. And I was like, lady, I don't have monkeys. I've never had monkeys. I don't plan on having monkeys. Like, I don't know where you got my phone number and I don't know why you're screaming at me for 20 minutes about this. Was that before, I'm assuming that was before the invention of the phrase, cool story, bro. Yeah, yeah, yep. <laughs> you know, early on, I I had a hard time filtering for myself who I I felt it was important for me to talk to and not talk to because I also felt it was very important for me to collect as much information as possible. So it was a kind of odd balance at the beginning of how to go about that. Cause like, I didn't know who I was talking to if they were or were not significant people in the history of the game farm until I had a long conversation with them. So that was something you really tried to put together was the history of the place in some sort of coherent fashion. And I, I mean, why was that important? Like what, why did you care about that? I don't think that anybody who doesn't care about things like that should own properties like that. Like it's, it's literally a piece of history. And if you're not going to respect the piece of history, then you shouldn't own it. Agree completely. So we've gone through like you purchasing the place and some of the odd stuff that went on in the beginning. One thing that I had wanted to ask you was, uh, so when did it open? <laughs> yeah, smart ass. Um, 
I don't know, we think 1933. What did you dig up in the, it, we, th- we thought 1933 because that was widely published on the flyers, but then there was a sign in the inn that sounded like 1939, if I remember correctly. And then you had found another date that was from Mr. Lindemann from a news report, right? And I'll have to go back and check my notes, but I think it was like 1945-ish that they were talking about. There, there was the one date that everybody said that it was open. 1933 was what was most published. Okay. Go back to, I guess, what you were about to say, Matt, was uh, asking about finding the donor. Oh, yeah. Uh, you said you had some difficulties finding a donor for the property. Can you uh, tell me a little bit about how you ended up finding one? Yeah, um, a friend, a very, very good friend of mine, uh, her father ended up lending us the What money. was that caught their attention about it? Um, I mean, we were, I'm very close with that family. And I think that he was starting to get gun shy just from lending money to people and not getting it back, which I think was the only hesitation for not lending it right out of the starting gate. And then as he went and saw the game farm and saw what we were looking to do, it enticed him more to, to help us. By the way, I checked you are correct. 1933. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that threw me off. I don't know why, for some reason I had the, uh, I had them switched in my head that it was earlier when I had uh, looked it up, but I guess not. Yeah, I want to say that it was, you'll have to double check this, but I want to say it was 1953 that they were officially designated by the Zoological Association or something like that as like the first designated on the registry privately on zoo, like a registered zoo. When you started working on the inn itself, what challenges did you run into? Well, it was a barn, <laughs> so converting a barn into a high-end inn in itself was complicated. Um, we had some problems, like we had a giant tree fall on the roof. That was fun. We had a giant dry well under the driveway open up, which we didn't know was there, and that took a while to fill in. Um, we almost lost a piece of machinery into it. Other than that, it was just like what you would expect from converting a barn over, just trying to get everything out. You know, like there was a furnace that was as big as some bedrooms I've had attached to a ceiling in the kitchen. And to get that down was complicated. Getting all the, we wanted to keep the building as original as possible, even just aesthetically. So finding siding that was new age siding that was going to be environmentally conscious, just being environmentally conscious about everything we're doing, but still having it look original was a little complicated. And really you did a miraculous job. I mean, having seen that afterwards, First of all, I mean, I I always was hopeful for the plans that you had there, but I knew as time was going on, it was it was looking maybe a little more and more of a challenge for you to realize some of the bigger dreams that you had. I mean, you'd like the tender site. So people were coming and actually camping on the property. But I remember how exciting that was when you found out that you were going to get the funding to do the end and then, you know, seeing it progress and just how wonderfully you had it together. I mean, you, you had all the signs over the place you had. Yeah, it was just, it's really beautifully decorated. So I have to give you kudos on pulling off something that it's really pretty miraculous. I mean, thank I, you. I thank you. You know, oh, you know, actually, one of the most complicated things we dealt with with uh, when it came to complications was the floors upstairs. Because as you know, the floors are all original wood, but they were under concrete and tar. And there was a long time that we were having discussions of how exactly we were even going to get the tar up because everything we were trying, like if you try to sand it, it just gunks up all the pads and we couldn't get it up. And then eventually Ben figured out that if he took like an old, old space heater, you know, one that like you would never put in your house now because it's a huge fire hazard and flipped it upside down on a garment rack on wheels, he could use it as a giant heat gun, essentially. And, and we scraped all the tar up that way, which was the first out of many attempts that actually went smoothly and that was the only reason we were able to save the floors up there that's uh that's kind of genius actually yeah yeah it worked really well uh so going through all this effort uh to reopen the inn and get the rv park set up why decide to sell it uh i had a very tragic event in my family where i lost several members of my family and it caused a lot of stress for me and i really wanted to just step away from the complications that were running multiple businesses. I really needed a simpler life where I could just relax more, which it became very apparent that that was not going to happen with the game farm. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Thank and you. That, that also, your opening kind of coincided with uh, COVID. I mean, you opened what, like six months? Yeah, yeah. We opened in August uh, of 2019 and then COVID came about six months later. 
How, um, so ignoring, you know, COVID, how were the first six months? It was very successful and kind of crazy, <laughs> you know, was like running around like chickens or heads cut off, but it was, it went very, very well right out of the starting gate, which we were very grateful for. And I mean, all this time, like you've also been doing a wedding planning business mm-hmm. and that's something that I having had <laughs> having had one wedding and uh that was that was more than enough for me in terms of planning and figuring everything out i i cannot imagine the how, how many how many weddings do you plan a year so uh at the height of the busiest times that i was doing it i was doing up to 22 weddings in a year i mean that's absolutely intense so you're doing for the sake of you know a round number you're doing around 20 weddings a year you're you're working on this in yeah. and then opening it and having to run it and and then the other stuff that you're going through that you mentioned I mean that's that's a heck of a lot um, yeah and we also had the four glamping sites and the self-guided tour days which we had I mean really over 10,000 people a year coming just to walk the property and that all took you know getting liability waivers signed and organizing time slots and all that I mean that that seems like a very overwhelming amount of work yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yep. I mean, you you sold the property, which uh, seemed like it went pretty quick. I mean, it was yeah, it did. shockingly quick. <laughs> it was very fast. You you sold it for one point nine million, right? One point eight six. One point eight six. That's awesome. So, yep. I mean, in, in essence, for something that again, you know, just using rough numbers for the sake of uh, expedience, you know, you you spent a little under a hundred thousand. Yep. And sold it for almost 1.9 million. Yep. You know, give or take the half million dollar loan and the other, you know, the taxes every year and insurance and all that. That's amazing. I mean, is that, uh, is that something that you're kind of like, are you glad to see that, um, that chapter closed? Do you miss it? Are you, was it, was it hard when you left or were you like, okay, I'm really ready to move on to what's next? I was really ready to move on. Uh, but, you know, when the closing happened, Ben and I, you know, we cried and we talked about just what it was like to go through such an intense experience together and how miraculous it was that we came out in the end the way that we did, you know, having a, a good buyer and having successfully done what we were looking to do. And uh, it was just bittersweet in a lot of ways. The people that bought the property, they are planning on continuing with continuing with the inn. That is my understanding. So do you know anything else about their future plans for the property? My understanding is that they plan on really going in a very similar direction to what we were looking to do. Do more accommodations, different types, tiny houses, RV park kind of plans. And uh, I believe they're talking about bringing some animals back, although they won't be as exotic as they once were. What about you? What, what are, what's next for you? Well, I'm still doing wedding planning uh, and I've, I've got a new boyfriend that I'm very happy with and we just plan on doing a lot of traveling. Want to plug your uh, your your wedding business if uh, anybody out there is planning a wedding? <laughs> sure. It's Kathy's Elegant Events. Uh, we're in the Knott's Hall of Fame for best wedding planners in the Hudson Valley. And we've done over a hundred weddings. We specialize in non-traditional wedding venues. So we work primarily in tents, barns, historic sites, warehouses, places like that throughout the Hudson Valley and upstate New York. And I have to say, I mean... Uh, I, I have not um, I have not attended one of the weddings that you've planned, but I know just from the job that you did with the inn, it was very classic, but modern at the same time. Like it was kind of a classy, modern feel, I thought, to it. Very, uh, very nice little touches that I thought gave it really like a hominess. Like maybe you could maybe you could talk a little bit about like what you did with the different rooms, like the elephant room and the giraffe room and all that. Sure. So I think that pretty much uh, everybody can agree that safari print can be pretty obnoxious for the brain to look at. <laughs> you know, like zebra print and giraffe print can be pretty harsh. Uh, so my goal was not to go in that direction, instead to do themed rooms for animals in a much more understated way. So I did that with uh, color palettes. So like the elephant room and the rhino room, for example, were all gray palettes because they are gray animals. Um, the giraffe room was tan, uh, tan color palette, but a dark tan, like a giraffe pattern would be. Um, and then I went out of my way to specifically pick up decor that was 
like a watercolor of a mama and baby elephant, you know, not a giant elephant statue sticking out of the side of a wall. I tried to make sure that it was something that was pretty, but still obviously related to the animal within that room. Yeah, I I thought that was really nice how you did that because it wasn't in your face. I, I gave a sense of what you were going for and tying it together, but it it certainly wasn't done in a, uh, you know, like a gaudy or, or, or pushy sort of way. Well, yeah. Exactly. And I thought that was what was neat about the whole project was, you know, you had all the things that were from the site, but they were tied together in a way that they really sort of made a nice whole uh, and were very welcoming, but again, not I guess you could have really gone over the top with like being kitschy or something like that. But I, I thought it was something that was a lot more um, elegant looking, really. Yeah, yeah, that, that was my goal. I didn't want to create a room filled with knickknacks and in your face, ostentatious design. I wanted people to be able to walk in and be like, wow, this is really nice. And just get comfortable and relax and not feel like they're in Disney World. So Matt, do you have uh, do you have any more questions? I had one question that I was thinking of, and I should have asked it a little earlier. You had mentioned that people were interested in looking at the signs or buying the signs. Did you ever have any of the uh, History Channel, American Pickers people, or that kind of group come through looking to buy that stuff? Because I know that's always on. No, yeah, we had actually applied to have American Pickers come take a look at the property, but they didn't end up coming out. Uh, by the time we reached out to them on their tour, they're just, they had too many spots already picked out. Okay. Well, I think I think that pretty much wraps it up for uh, the questions that I have, Matt. Uh, that was it for me. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us. Like I said, I think it's really interesting, A, that you took on a project like that, B, that you did it with such a uh, respectful uh, approach. I mean, that is ultra rare when it comes to people buying these properties, as I'm sure Matt can. Yes. Um, and and then see, you managed to pull off something which I, I think would have been very difficult for anybody to do, which was getting the end done and um, done as nicely as you did. So congratulations yeah. on that. Thank you. Yeah, making an abandoned zoo profitable was not a small undertaking. And I'm really, I'm glad and proud of the fact that we were able to accomplish that before selling. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't tell you and and... Matt can back me up on this. There are so many people that buy properties like these and they have these huge ideas of all these great things that they're going to do with them and they never materialize. And you see the property deteriorate more and more and the person gets more and more jaded about it. And then one day somebody else comes in and levels the whole thing. And uh, none of none of the great plans that the person had were done. So um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm really glad that that is not part of my story. Right. You're you're one of the kind of inspirational ends of things, which are are unfortunately somewhat rare. Again, thank you so much. Uh, It's been great talking to you. I look forward personally to catching up with you and hearing more about your travels on the road and where that takes you. I know you had uh, been talking about going on some of the the trips that I have planned abroad when, you know, whenever that happens. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's just really exciting. I think it's, it's really terrific what you accomplished with that. And I'm sure you have a lot of like really cool adventures that I'll, I'll be checking back with you and on down the road. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I look forward to seeing you and Olivia again sometime. Okay. Thanks so much. Thank you. You too. Bye, Matthew. Bye, Matthew. Take care, my friend.